turn with me this morning, if you would please, back to Acts chapter 20. I want to look this morning at the subject matter, Principles for Biblical Leadership. Now folks, I, I trust by the end of the message we'll see too that it, it has more, more application than uh, simply to, to leadership in the church, though that is the, the direct application. But if you think about it, all of us in some way or another with some group of people exercise a role of leadership. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent or uh, if you're a Christian student trying to reach your friends for Christ, there's a leadership role you have with those individuals. And so there's a powerful word of application in this text really for, for everybody in the church. Um, Find also Psalm 119. We'll turn there later on in the context of the message. It may be easier if you just go ahead and, and locate that now. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Principles for Biblical Leadership. Beginning there in verse 28, Paul is continuing here in his, his speech, his challenge to the Ephesian elders. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who were sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own necessities, and those who are with me, and in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Father, we're so grateful for the message of the book of Acts. As we read about the gospel spreading out in concentric circles, reaching more and more lost with the good news of Jesus. Planting churches in major cities. Lord, we thank you for the challenge that this book is to the modern-day church. To the challenge it gives us that as we win people to the Lord, we're to disciple them, and then we are to go out and reach others. There's to be this continuing growth cycle and continuing to send people into the harvest. 
Lord, I pray that we would not be like the disciples who wanted to wait. And Jesus said, I say to you, lift up your eyes even now and look, for the fields are white under harvest. Lord, give us a vision and give us a burden for those lost among us. And how you want to use each of us individually and how you want to use us collectively as a body of believers to make a difference. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scott Turo begins his novel, Presumed Innocent, with the words of a prosecuting attorney by the name of Rusty. Rusty is explaining his approach to the jury when he's in court. Rusty said, this, this is how I always begin my cases in a court of law. When I'm about to begin the litigation of a new case. He stands up and he looks at the audience. He looks in particular at those 12 jury members. And he says, hello, I am the prosecutor. I represent the state. I'm here to present to you the evidence of a crime. Together you will weigh the evidence. You will deliver, deliberate upon it. You will decide if it proves the defendant's guilt. Rusty said at this point, I, I take my arm, I, I stretch it out over toward the defendant, and I point directly at him. I say, if you as, as the prosecutor don't have the courage to be able to point to the one who is being tried, then the jury is surely not going to have the courage to convict. Rusty said, and so I point. I extend my arm across the courtroom in his direction. I hold my index finger straight and I seek the defendant's eye. And I say, this man has been accused of, and I list the crime, and I will show you conclusively before this trial is over that the evidence says that he is indeed guilty. Now folks, that's a principle that holds true to life. People need leaders to galvanize their courage and convictions. We need leaders to take a stand and to say in no uncertain terms what it is that they believe. That's leadership. That's what leaders do. Some are gifted with leadership from a very young age. It's just a natural born gift that God has given to them. It's a part of their DNA. It's a part of their makeup. But even if that is not a part of your makeup, it is definitely something that each of us can, can develop more. Well, Paul is addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus in this passage. They were the leaders in that church, the pastors. And we began looking at Paul's challenge to them last week. Now today we're going to focus more on what Paul actually said to these men themselves. 
And folks, what he says certainly shows the importance of leadership in the church. You and I need to remember that Jesus called 12 disciples and for three years he trained them and he discipled them, getting them ready for the task that he was about to send them out to do. And on top of choosing those 12 and training those 12, even among that group, he set aside three for special leadership and service. There was Peter and James and John. And then there are others in the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul. He identified young men to be leaders. There was Timothy and Titus, for example. And he trained them to be pastors. He gave them instructions. And then as he sent them out into various places, he told them in turn to appoint other leaders, to appoint other elders. In other places in the Bible, we see the responsibilities toward elders. In Hebrews 13, the Bible says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. You add to that Paul's words in in 1 Thessalonians 5. He said, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Likewise, Paul had some strong words to a young leader himself, to Timothy. Listen to what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. He said, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so we see in the Bible mutual responsibilities. Respect and submission on the part of the people and, and diligence and competence on the part of the leader. Now, in this passage, we see even more pointedly what the elders themselves are to do. Paul wants them to understand very clearly their responsibilities. It's a personal challenge to leaders. Now, again, this certainly has application to all of us because we encounter leaders at every level of life. As one writer put it, God's even put a pecking order among the angels. There's an archangel, and then there's principalities and powers. And so we see in the Scripture that God is a God of order. In all areas of life, we face those who are in authority, and in some instances, we are the ones in authority. Now, every parent understands this. Now, by the way, on a side note, This is one of the verses, verse 28 here, is one of the verses that Baptists use in Baptist life for saying that in the church, there's only two offices, that of pastors and deacons, or elders and deacons. You see, the group Paul is speaking to here uh, is the Ephesian elders, Paul had called for the Ephesian elders to come and meet him because he wanted to give instructions to them 
as he was on his way to Jerusalem because he wasn't expecting to ever see them again. And so he calls the Ephesian elders to him. And then here in verse 28, he tells them to shepherd or to pastor the flock over which God has made them overseers. And the word overseer is the word from which we also get the word bishop. And so in this one verse, we see a group that was called the elders being challenged to pastor the flock and to be an overseer over the flock. And so it would seem that elder and pastor and overseer and bishop, all of those words are used in the Bible interchangeably referring to the same group of men. And as one writer put it, as you, as you look at these titles, the emphasis is, is on what their function is to be. It's not just on the title itself, but the function. They are to be a shepherd. They are to be an overseer. Well, two groups. That also seems to be backed up by Paul's introduction to the Philippians in Philippians 1. He, he greets three groups of people there in Philippians 1. He sends his greeting to all of the saints who are at Philippi and then in particular for the pastors and the deacons. So again, two offices. And then we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we have the qualifications for two groups of people, for pastors or elders and deacons. And so again, that's where... Baptists get the idea of just two offices in the church. But back to this text, what in the world is a Christian leader to do? What is an elder or a pastor to do? Not only do all church bodies have leadership, but the life and the example of leadership is something everybody ought to aspire to do. Folks, there shouldn't be any Christian in the church that says, you know what, I, I want to be the sorriest Christian I can be. I just want to sit back and do nothing and do the least amount of work or service that I can possibly do. It ought to be the goal. It ought to be the aspiration for any believer in the church to say, you know what, I want to be the very best that I can be for Jesus Christ. And, and I want to grow and I want to have qualities in my life that if my church family were looking for, the, if they were looking for leadership, I would be one of the ones that they would contact. That ought to be a goal for any believer to live that type of, of noble life. Now also we see here mentioned that it is the Holy Spirit who calls someone into this. Paul refers to them as elders whom the Holy Spirit has put over the flock. You see, it's not a popularity contest or whatever we might want to make of it. It is a calling and in church leadership, if you just simply want a nine-to-five job, then in all likelihood, you need to find something else to do with your life. It is a calling. What I want you to see this morning is that among all the various responsibilities of a leader, what is it that the Apostle Paul deemed the most important thing to say to a group of men that he never expected to see again? What was his last will and testament to the Ephesian elders? 
We're going to see the emphasis being on one's inner life and building up others and keeping God's Word central. So the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the need for leaders to guard themselves and the flock. Look again at verse 28. Paul says, Pray, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, folks, what is the very first challenge Paul had for them? The very first challenge, Paul said, guard yourself. Take heed unto yourself. It's not an accident that the very first principle for a leader to live by is to guard his own heart. Paul said to Timothy to guard your doctrine and your life. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he said, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Folks, the first challenge for any Christian leader is to look in the mirror on a continual basis and guard his own heart, set the proper boundaries around his own life. What is the most difficult area for anybody, or what's the area I guess you should, I could say of greatest temptation for anybody? The greatest temptation is somebody letting their guard down about their own life. I think of Samson in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, you read all the saints of God in the Old Testament, and what the Scripture says about Samson, folks, you can't hardly find anybody in the Bible that would have had any more potential in his life than Samson. But Samson had a problem. Samson, it doesn't seem, was able to guard his mind or his heart. He went after foreign women all the time. Women that God had said to the sons of Israel, you are not to associate with them because you marry them and they're going to come into your home with all of their false gods and all of their idols and your heart is going to be taken away from the Lord your God. And yet everywhere you read about Samson going, he's marrying foreign women and even chasing after prostitutes. And you sit there and think, how could a man of God do that? But you read on the narrative about Samson's life and you see the price that he paid for all of that. He lost his influence. It, he ended up losing his eyesight, becoming a prisoner to the, to the Philistines. And, and eventually it cost him his life, perhaps at an earlier age than would have been planned otherwise. Samson had a problem of guarding his own life. As leaders in the church and as Christians, just Christians in general trying to win our lost neighbors and friends, folks, we've got to set a guard over our own heart. We've got to take heed to our own heart. This is an admonition here that's in the imperative. And not only is it in the imperative, but it is in the present imperative, meaning that it is to be the, the constant practice in a leader's life that he guards himself. He takes heed to himself. 
The Puritan John Owen reminded leaders, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that is what he is and no more. Listen to what Richard Baxter wrote in The Reformed Pastor. By the way, that's still a classic that's used. Everybody going into the ministry is challenged to read a book by Richard Baxter, the Reformed uh, Pastor. Great book on, on, on Christian pastoring. And by the way, in Richard Baxter's ministry, it was a policy uh, in the church that every person in every family had to meet personally with uh, Mr. Baxter. They had to meet one-on-one -on -one with him on a regular basis for a spiritual checkup. And, and they would sit before him and he would say, what's going on in your life? How can we as a church, how can I as a pastor help you? Where are you struggling? Are there sins that you're battling against? Uh, do you have any questions about the Word of God? How can I as a pastor come alongside of you and help you to grow in the Lord? How can I better disciple you? Everybody on his church role had to have that meeting with him on a regular basis. No wonder he accomplished so much in that church and in that community. Listen to what Richard Baxter wrote to others. It's kind of a long quote. Bear with me. He wrote this to pastors. He said, take heed to yourselves lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others. And lest you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Will you make your work to magnify God and when you have done, dishonor Him as much as others do? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet condemn it and rebel against it yourselves? Will you preach His laws and willfully break them? If sin be evil, then why do you live in it? If it be not, then why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without a cause? Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin and yet do not overcome it, lest while you seek to bring it down in others, you bow to it and become its slaves yourselves. Powerful words from one pastor to, to others. Good words to live by anybody who's in a place of leadership influencing others. Take heed to yourself. Guard yourself. Second thing about that here is guard the flock. Not only guard yourself, but guard the flock. Take heed to it. Same type of instruction. Guard them. Shepherd them. Now, the phrase here to shepherd is a present imperative, meaning that the minister is to shepherd continually. Again, as a way of life, he is to shepherd the flock. Ancient shepherds lived with their sheep. They knew them by name. They knew all of their peculiarities. 
Listen to Jesus' words about being the good shepherd in John 10. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, just before those verses right there, Jesus was speaking of thieves and robbers who would come in and try to do only damage and harm to the flock. Now, folks, the background to all of these passages in the New Testament on shepherding, it's believed that the background would surely have to be Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. You see, in Ezekiel 34, God is addressing the shepherds of the day and he's condemning them. Listen to what God said to the shepherds. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek. For them. What a tragedy. God also said through the prophet Jeremiah that the shepherds were not feeding the people the word of God. And because of that, you remember what God said to them? He said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. He said, shepherds, you're not feeding the sheep. And because you're not feeding the sheep, they don't know my word. They don't know the revelation that I've given to man of how I want man to be saved and how I want man to live. And because you've not taught them my word, they don't know it. And because they don't know it, they go out and live any way they want to live. And the result of that is they are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God said to shepherds, you are to feed the sheep. Folks, that's why when people joke with me about preaching, and I trust that you're joking, probably some of you aren't. But when you joke with me about preaching, what do I do? I just keep right on preaching. You know why? 
Because the Bible says to shepherds, you're supposed to feed the sheep. And in the Bible, a shepherd who would not feed the sheep, the word of God, was under the judgment and condemnation of God. That's why if somebody comes here, whether it's from the pulpit or even in your Sunday school class, they're at the podium. Folks, I trust that what we're doing is we're opening up God's book, the Bible, and we're teaching the Word of God. That's what we're to be about as a church. I had a visitor come up to me last week and she said, Pastor, I've been coming here for a while now and I plan to continue. I visited all around and not many people are are really preaching the Bible anymore the way you do. She said, plus I like the depth you put in your sermons. They challenge me to think about certain things. Well, while that's a compliment, while that's encouraging... I also sit and I scratch my head and I think, what in the world are churches out there doing? What are pastors doing? Folks, the Bible is our message. And that's also why we need to be preaching through it passage by passage and book by book. What do so many people do in their daily devotions? And what do they do at church on the weekends? They'll read one little verse in this book, and then tomorrow they'll skip way over 15 books, and they'll land down and grab a hold of another little verse here. And then the day after that, they turn back 40 books in this direction, and they read a little verse over here. Folks, that is a sorry way to read and study our Bibles. God wrote the Bible, 66 individual books, to people or groups of people. And that letter from beginning to end has a message in it. And it is a crying shame the way we treat the Word of God today by preaching these little scattered bits and pieces about the Word of God. No wonder people don't understand their Bibles anymore. God said, I'll raise up shepherds who will feed my people. In Matthew 9, you remember Jesus was grieved because the people were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, two of the main jobs of shepherds were to feed the sheep and to guard them or look out for them because of attacks. That's why I tell guys, you've got to go away and prepare. Especially in this day and age, you've got to know theology. You've got to know church history. You have to. You simply have to. Folks, you've got to be able to recognize what's on the scene out there. We've got to be able to recognize sound doctrine. Just because we live in a day and age when anybody can go buy them a guitar and a Bible and start a church doesn't mean that they should. You've got to prepare. One of the greatest preachers of all times, Alexander McLaren, he would, he would spend 60 hours a week studying for a single message. You say, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. It's not if you have a high view of the inspiration of Scripture. It deserves our best. 
God commanded, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, God through Paul, he commanded them here, guard yourself, guard the flock, shepherd them, feed them. Now, before moving off of this, look at the end of verse 28, because here's the real motivation that he gives them. At the end of verse 28, he says, to care for the church of God, now underscore this, which he obtained with his own blood. Folks, Christ loves his church. He said, I will build my church. Remember in Acts chapter 9 when the apostle Paul was still an unbeliever, when he was the Jewish rabbi Saul? You remember what Saul was doing? Saul was persecuting Christians. He was persecuting the church. And when Jesus came to to Saul and and converted him and called him to, to be a Christian and a Christian missionary, you remember what he said? He said, why are you persecuting me? Stop and think about that. Saul was persecuting Christians. And Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Folks, Jesus loves the church. He loves his church. We are his bride. And he has purchased us. He has redeemed us with his own blood. The Bible says all we like sheep had gone astray and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He laid down his life and he died. He died for you and me. He loves his church. Purchased it with his own blood. Now, here's a phrase that has driven scribes nuts through the years. Evidently, they didn't like to think about God having blood because the Scripture says God is spirit. And so the scribes would come across this verse in their copying, and they would take out the word God, and they would substitute in Lord, the church of the Lord, Lord being an obvious reference to Jesus, who in his incarnation, of course, did shed his blood. But folks, that's such an unnecessary concern, though. But without a doubt, God is probably the original reading because it, had it been Lord to start with, there wouldn't have been reason for scribes to want to adjust it. Plus, there's good manuscript evidence for translating it, which he purchased with the blood of his own. The church of God, which he purchased with the blood of his own. His own being who? His son, Jesus Christ. God gave his only begotten son to die on the cross, to shed his blood for the church. The point I want you to see is sacrifice. Jesus laid down his life. Folks, that's how much he loves his bride, the church. Now, boy, I wish I had more time this morning. This would be a great place to get off on a soapbox, okay? It is disturbing how many who claim to follow Christ have such little regard for his church. You know, that's odd to me. 
Jesus loves his bride. How can somebody say, I know him, and I love him, and I follow him, and at the same time, they have such a low regard and a low involvement in what Jesus gave his very life for? It's not even logical. If we love Jesus, we need to love his bride. We need to love the church. We need to love one another. So there's the motivation of Jesus himself and how leaders ought to love and, and, and protect themselves and the flock. Guard themselves and the flock. And then in verse 29 here, he gives the further motivation that we need to guard ourselves and the flock because of attacks and falsehood. God's flock is always in danger. There will be attacks from within and without. I, I want you to think about what we've already seen in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, we saw the young church being attacked from without. And when they were attacked from the outside, what did they do? They gathered together, they prayed, they went to the Lord in prayer, and God moved in their midst, and God strengthened them and gave them even more boldness. Then you turn the page and get into Acts chapter 5, and you see that the church was attacked from within, from the inside. Satan's clever, isn't he? When one, when one mode of operation doesn't work, he'll turn and use an, another mode of op operation. But, but the church has always faced difficult times. It's always lived in a culture that was against God. It's always faced attacks. The early church had to constantly battle Judaism or, or uh, the Judaizers who held to much of Judaism. The Judaizers pretended on the one hand that they had come to faith in Christ, but remember what they were saying? That a salvation based on Christ isn't good enough. You need more than Jesus. You need a Jesus plus something else salvation. In addition to Jesus, you need the Mosaic law. You need circumcision. You need all the trappings of the Old Testament law. And Paul had to continually battle against the Judaizers and try to show people that that wasn't the gospel. And then there was Gnosticism. Gnosticism was Greek. It was a Greek philosophy. It's, it, it pretty much pushed Christ aside, said he didn't really come in the flesh. He was just a, a, a ghost. He didn't come in the flesh and die on the cross for, for your sins. Salvation was through a special knowledge, the Gnostics said. Gnosis, a special knowledge. Folks, the, the early church and the apostles, the biblical writers had to continually battle these attacks. It's not unusual today in, in society for the church uh, to be facing a, a, an unbelieving world. We've always had to face this kind of stuff. We've got to be strong in the Lord. We've got to guard ourselves. We've got to take heed to ourselves and to the flock. Second, I'm already out of time, so we're going to be quick here, okay? The need for leaders to utilize the Word of God is the second thing I want you to see. 
skip down to verse 32 a minute. Look, look at what he says here. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And folks, after Paul warns them, I want you to notice what he says. In, in verse 32, what's the answer that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders? The answer that he gives them is, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. You see what he's saying, folks? Folks, we can't fight the devil on our own. We need God and we need his word of grace. Satan attacks in the area of truth. That's why Paul would say to Timothy later on, guard the treasure, guard the doctrine. And the early church continued in the doctrine of the apostles. I've told you many times, it matters what you and I believe. Folks, sincerity is not enough in and of itself because you can sincerely believe the wrong thing. God is a God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth matters. Absolute truth matters. The Bible says unapologetically that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and it tells us the wages of sin is death. But it also points out uh, that, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Paul's just told them to guard themselves and the flock and he's warned them of the dangers that they'll face. But, but then he says, I commend you to the word of God. I commend you to God in the word of his grace. That's it. You see what he's saying to these elders? You just need to depend on God and his word. Let his word be your foundation. Paul didn't say to those elders, guys, I want you to go over here and do these 15 things. When you get these 15 things done, then turn this direction and do these 20 things. And then turn this direction and do these three things. He said simply, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Now that's the Protestant Reformation principle of sola scriptura, isn't it? The sufficiency of scripture. The importance of the Word of God. If people in the church, and especially leaders, will keep themselves grounded in the Word of God, folks, that in and of itself will take care of so many headaches that the church is faced with today. If we'll just simply stay grounded in the Word of God. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them with your word. Your word is truth. God is a God of truth. His word is truth. Leaders need to grow themselves. It's not just feeding the flock, but it's also growing themselves. Leaders don't just turn to the word of God for a Sunday school lesson or a sermon. Grow yourself on the word of God. Why? Because it builds us up, as he says here. And as it builds us up, we're able to turn and build others up. I want you to turn with me for a moment back to Psalm 119. And folks, as, as we read Psalm 119, I want you to keep in your mind, and keep in the background of your mind, this phrase Paul 
has made in in verse 32 of our text this morning, when he says, I commend you to, the, to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Think about that phrase, which is able to build you up, okay? Because listen to what the psalmist says about that. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? 11, I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Look at verse 100. I understand more than the aged because I keep your precepts. You see what the psalmist is saying the word of God does? No wonder the apostle Paul said, God's word is able to build you up. And then finally, quickly, he tells leaders to live with selflessness. Selflessness. He begins there in verse 33 by saying, I've coveted nobody's silver or gold or apparel. Paul was not a greedy man. Now, Paul argued forcefully in several different places that a minister is worthy of support. He did so in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 1 Timothy 5, even calling on the church to consider double honor or reward for those who work hard at teaching the Word of God. But as I've already mentioned in the book of Acts, when Paul came to Corinth, Paul went to Corinth as a tent maker. He supported himself, and the reason he did was because Corinth had a mindset against supporting teachers. Anybody who made a living by their words at Corinth, they didn't like that. So in other places, Paul had argued for the support of a minister, but at Corinth, he supported himself because the school of the cynics, it was a Greek philosophy school, had poisoned the water at Corinth. They were so greedy and they, they fleeced the flock that at Corinth, there was just a mindset against supporting anybody who taught. So Paul reminds them when he was in that whole area and then even when he went to Asia, he worked with his own hands so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be a stumbling block in, in any way. Folks, what a shame that so many in the ministry today ha have brought reproach on the gospel because of greed Look at the Charlotte area here. What happened? What, what was it? 25, 30 years ago in the Charlotte area? This whole PTL scandal. You think of what some in the Charlotte area, even recently that have, that have been in the news. 
pastors doing things, building multi-million dollar mansions and, and, and the congregation not even knowing where any of the money goes. Folks, things like that discredit the ministry to where then when a pastor goes around and knocks on somebody's door, they say, I don't go to church anymore. We used to, but you know what? Churches have become about the wrong thing. Well, most of them haven't become about the wrong thing, but some kind of poison the water for everybody. And, and Paul is saying to leaders here, you need to live with selfishness so there's nothing in your life that if your life is put under a microscope and examined, there'd be nothing about your life that would discredit the ministry. Folks, the gospel is too important to compromise it with anything. It's too important. So leaders need to guard themselves, take heed to themselves, and to the flock. They need to lean back on and rely on and utilize the, the Word of God. That's our tool for ministry. And as Christians, in fact, as Christians at large, we need to protect our lives from greed and worldliness or anything that would be a reproach to the gospel. Because the gospel is too important. People, these, the, the, these are eternal things that we're about. People are out there and they are dying, lost, and they are going to a devil's hell. And we've got the good news of the gospel. And so we need to believe right, we need to preach right, and we need to live right. Too much is at stake. Would you bow with me, please? Are you a leader in the church? If you are, I want to ask each of us to guard our lives. There's too much at stake not to do so. Remember, you do not live unto yourself. What you do has a ripple effect on others. By the way, that goes for everybody here. What you do has a ripple effect on others. I want to ask you to weekly try to develop your life even more. There's always more room to, to learn. The more you learn, the deeper you send your roots down, the more you're going to be able to help others. Leaders also remember what our textbook is. Our textbook is the 66 books of the Bible. There is no excuse whatsoever for not using the Scripture in our teaching and preaching. I want to challenge you to increase your knowledge of the Word of God. If you're not a leader in the church, would you pray for those of us who are? And then finally, the most important invitation I want to make to you is to live your life under the leadership of Jesus Christ. His leadership and lordship. 
Could it be that there's somebody here this morning that needs to come forward confessing Christ publicly as Lord? Everybody he called, he called to take a public stand. Do you need to take that public stand and then follow the Lord in believer's baptism? You come forward as well. God, speak to us. Speak to us while we are yielded and still before you. Have your way and your will in the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.